0: Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast where Lewis and I bring on guests with the answers to the questions that we want to know. Guests with experience doing what we want to do, whether that's entrepreneurship, marketing, real estate, running a show, or just living an unconventional life. We bring them on to learn what they've done and how they did it and to share that advice with you all.
1: This is more of a kind of special edition episode. It's not related to any of our quote unquote, professional goals, you know, being an entrepreneur, investing in real estate, having successful podcasts, but more about just getting the answers to some current events right now, understanding COVID-19, understanding the recent stimulus packages in the broader context of US history. So I invited on my US history teacher from high school, AP US history, Matthew Aberman. He was also my quiz bowl varsity quiz advisor. That's the same kind of activity, our previous guest, Nibir Sarma, the Jeopardy champion, college Jeopardy guy, uh, did when he was in high school. Anyway, he's very knowledgeable, not just about US history, but also about the history of science and technology, which gives him a unique perspective on pandemics throughout history and realistic timelines for drug development, vaccines, and thinking about those things with a little bit more realism and facts rather than you know a Facebook article. So we brought him on to shed some light on everything going on in the world right now and how we can think about it in terms of recent events in the past. I think you all will enjoy the episode. We had a great time doing the conversation and found it really educational. And with that, we're just going to cut right to it. Mr. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on with us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: For the first question, before we get into a bigger discussion where we ask you all sorts of questions about pandemics and history and economics relating to the current situation, our first question is just for you to tell us a little bit about your academic background, some of the things you've kind of studied more deeply and some of that history.
2: Yeah, so my academic background is I have my undergraduate degree from the University of Washington in Seattle. I majored in history, and then I went to graduate school at UC Santa Barbara, where I completed a master's in the history of science and technology. Mostly, as far as the history of science part, I was interested in astronomy and cosmology, but my third PhD field was U.S. foreign relations, and my fourth PhD field was modern Middle East. So U.S. foreign relations with an emphasis on the Cold War, which was kind of a cool way to an intersection between foreign policy and, and science and technology, because obviously, as I'm sure you guys know, during the Cold War, there was a tremendous amount of money that was spent on military hardware and technological development. So that's that's my historical background.
1: Okay. A uh, follow-up question is a little bit about the why. Why did you choose those things? What's your passion for history? What's the value of studying history? I know you cover this in some of your lectures in class, but I'll have you re-explain a little of it now.
2: Yeah, uh, very easy to explain. To me, history is the most exciting topic, and I know a lot of people don't agree with that, but to me, it's exciting because it's all-encompassing. You can study the history of anything, I mean, literally. And in fact, I think we need to. I think every field needs to study the history of its field. If you're an economist, for example, you need to know about past economic theories and conditions. Otherwise, you're going to be grossly uninformed about the present. Uh, scientists, as Isaac Newton famously said, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants. If you're a scientist and you don't know about the history of the field that you're in, how are you going to make any contributions to the field? You'll just keep reinventing the wheel. I think it's a shame that the public especially young people come to understand history the way that they do. I think us teachers maybe have some blame in that because of how it's taught. Plus, younger people don't tend to appreciate the past as much as older people. Older people, maybe they've lived longer, they have more experiences, and they get maybe a sense of nostalgia. But there's a lot of old cliches about history, and I think a lot of them are true. You've probably heard the one George Santayana that said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat
0: it. Yeah, I think that to touch on a point you made there about history and how it's kind of viewed by the public. I think that school in general does that to, to most subjects. You know, math is, a, is an art. It's a beautiful thing. But when you start in the first grade and, and you struggle every day to please this teacher that's in front of you, you become opposed to the idea of, of learning it or thinking that it's important when really, like you said, history is everything.
2: It becomes a chore. And that's a real shame. Look, I'm very passionate about history. Again, I just if you're a musician, for example, you can study the history of music. If you're an artist, you can study the history of art. It doesn't have to be battles, names, dates, presidents. It doesn't have to be any subject that you don't want it to be. You can pick and choose. The other thing I'm just going to add before we move on is, is I honestly believe that history teaches fantastic thinking skills. Causation. Um, learning how to separate correlation from causation, for example. Because as you know, correlation is not necessarily causation. Sometimes it is. That's why you have to learn how to make appropriate connections and appropriate comparisons it teaches you research skills. And another thing about history is it's personal. Every family has its history, your roots, your personal roots. It's also, by the way, national in the sense that it gives us the power to shape our national identity. What does it mean to be an American? And You often have to look at history to, to answer those questions, will you? What does it mean to be any any identity group? Yeah. I just think it's a fantastic subject and I hope the public has more of an appreciation for it than sometimes
0: it's... Yeah, I do too. One quick question though before we move on is for somebody who maybe had that teacher in front of them and got discouraged about history as they went through their school years. What would you suggest that, that person do in order to develop that love for history?
2: It would depend on the individual. What I would say is that I think there's a moment in everybody's life when they start getting into history. When they, For some people, it happens later than others. You know, the joke is everybody's bad at some point on the couch for hours on end watching World War II documentaries. It's my suggestion to those people would be to remember that, again, you can pick whatever topic in history that you're interested in and read about it, learn about it, watch, you know, good documentaries. About it, I would let it come to you. The more you try to force it, I think the more likely you are to continue to have negative views about. It. It's true for math. It's true for a lot of subjects, but I just think history is one of those where it's not everybody's good at math. Everybody, I think, can have an appreciation for the past.
0: So yeah, everybody has an application that they can they can find their niche within history because it is everything. Exactly.
2: That's my hobby.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, kind of what something Kyle and I think of ourselves, and that's what inspired this podcast in the first place, is reaching out to you, someone that we know who's very knowledgeable on history as a broad subject, but also United States history, specifically in economic and health-based history, and we recognize the value of looking to that as a way to guide our thinking about the present situation, so the first question we have for you is kind of contextualizing the current pandemic in terms of pandemics in history, if there's any precedent for the situation we're in if there's been a pandemic and a recession at the same time what's unique about the situation i mean there's a lot there
2: obviously there've been a tremendous number of pandemics in history and i'm not going to go all the way back to yeah. you know the plague of justinian in the byzantine empire or you know the black death in the middle ages yeah we're primarily at,
1: interested in somewhat yeah. modern times <laughs>
2: yeah if you look at uh if you look at us history and i'm not even going to try to go back to you know the 19th century let's just go back maybe a hundred years like the federal was created? Because I know that's a question that we're going to get into in, in a second. If you look at like the last hundred years, the most serious pandemic, of course, and the one that we've been seeing a tremendous amount about in the media, and I think for good reason, is the so-called Spanish flu pandemic that began sweeping the globe right near the end of World War One in 1918. And it lasted for about a year and a half, almost two years, up until about 1919, 1920. 19, and as I'm sure you guys know, I'm just going to repeat some of these numbers though. It killed about 50 million people worldwide. Some people think it may have killed 60, 70 million. Probably killed about 600,000 Americans, maybe more. And that's at a time when the US population was only about 100 million, a little over 100 million. So, I mean, if you think about that, the Spanish flu, if, had that happened equivalent to the American population today, that would have killed about 2 million Americans if you, you know, look at the per capita rate, death rate. So in other words, triple the number of Americans died from the Spanish flu in just a year and a half than died in World War I. There's similar numbers in places in Europe, for example. Uh, And you can go back, and people have been showing this in the media lately. You can see all these pictures of people wearing masks. I've read some really interesting articles about this. I read an article recently about how the Spanish flu affected the Stanley Cup finals in 1919. A very popular player died, and multiple players had to be hospitalized, and they actually canceled the last games of the Stanley Cup in Seattle and Montreal were declared co-champions. I mean, there were tremendous effects. But the key phrase I think that you just said a second ago, Lewis, is "and recessions. Has it been the case that a pandemic has caused a recession? There was a recession in 1919, again, the end of World War I, but to my knowledge, and I've been trying to look into this even more, I don't see any evidence to suggest that the reason why the American economy or the global economy went into recession was because of the Spanish flu.
1: 1919, so, what would that have been from?
2: See, Hyperinflation began to sweep Europe and the United States. The U.S. government had enormous numbers of wartime contracts that they put out there to manufacture weapons and and, and military equipment, and they canceled them overnight. Millions of troops were suddenly sent back to the United States from Europe. And there was really no plan to reintegrate them into the American economy. So all of a sudden, a couple million guys show up looking for jobs that don't exist because the American economy is already going into recession. And the result was unemployment skyrocketing. That's the reason why the American economy collapsed. It wasn't that the Spanish flu came out and then the entire American economy went into lockdown. That's not what happened. People still went out during the Spanish flu. Nothing in 1918, 1919 happened like what we just recently saw happen in our country. That's just a fact. And so one of the things that fascinates me about this is that I can't find any evidence that in the last hundred years that any recession in America has been, quote unquote, caused by a health crisis or a pandemic. The phrase that I've been using recently is, we are in uncharted territory. What makes this recession so unusual, so I think historically significant, is that The consumption rates in our economy, the fact that people were so terrified of leaving the house, that's the reason why the American economy shut down so rapidly. And it wasn't just the American economy. This is a global thing. This is not just an American thing. We saw the same thing repeating over and over again, spreading obviously from Asia to Europe to the Americans. And I can't see any previous pandemic in American history in which the healthcare crisis caused the recession. I'll give you another example. In 1957, something called the Asian flu swept the United States. If you read about the causes of the Asian flu, what you'll hear is you'll hear a lot of discussions about monetary policy and changes, for example, in, in, in interest rates. You will not hear anything about the Asian flu causing Americans to be so terrified of leaving the houses that the entire American consumption economy just crashed and came to a complete halt. That's not what happened in 1957. Again, I'm not denying that there may have been a connection or some impact, but that's not the cause.
0: Do you think that the current state of the economy and what's happening is more because of our response to the virus like i heard warren buffett he i don't know if he put it best but he definitely put it to where it stuck in my head and, and he said that he imagines the american economy like a train and mm-hmm. it's going full speed in like 2008 you know like some wheels fell off or we lost like a the caboose or something but what's happened recently is they picked the train up and just put it next to the tracks. It's full stop. Nothing's happening. And I think that that is what has caused the recession to be a thing. You know, consumer uh, spending is what? 30% of GDP? It it drives the
2: American economy. It's the straw that stirs the drink.
0: Exactly. So if we stop that, other than groceries and and food delivery, it, it just makes sense that a recession would come. But it's not because there's a correlation between pandemics and recessions. It's because our our prescription to helping people stay off of the virus or, or stay safe from the virus was to stay home, which has not yes. been the case in the past.
2: There, there have been a lot of people that have made that point, and I'm not definitely going to dispute it, the idea that the, the cure may have been worse than the disease. But, you know, I, I do think it's too early to say that because we're not, this isn't over yet. A lot of people are stopped paying attention to COVID-19 for Reason that we may or may not get into in this podcast, in particular, the protests sweeping the country about the the death of George Floyd. But I assure you right now that COVID nineteen is not gone. It, mm-hmm. it it's if, if epidemiologists can be trusted, and I believe they can, it's going to come back. In fact, it might come back sooner than we want it to because of how many people have almost overnight ceased to actually observe social distancing guidelines. But yeah, I mean, absolutely, Kyle, absolutely, one hundred percent. I, I You cannot make, I don't think, any other argument at this point that the response to COVID-19 may have been necessary. We'll get into that in a minute. There's a lot of indications that it may recover quicker than a lot of people thought possible. But again, a lot of this remains to be determined at this point. So
1: that's Mm -hmm. a very good
2: point, 100%. In my opinion, I think you're right.
1: (laughs) I think we can talk more about the potential roads to recovery economically and in terms of drug development in a second. But another question I have in terms of historical coincidences or two historical events happening at the same time is what about the intersection of pandemics and elections? Because that seems to be a potential interference with you know how it affects in-person voting, how it affects gatherings for political campaigns. Is there ever a connection between those two? events in history.
2: The conventions this summer, I mean, it remains to be determined whether those are going to happen in the way that we've come to expect them in our country for the last hundred and something years. Yeah. So again, looking at pandemics that have happened in recent American history, the last hundred years, the ones that come to mind are again, 1918, 1919. I'll get back to that in a second, 1957, the so-called Asian flu, 1968, which was something called the Hong Kong flu, and then obviously the one that we're experiencing right now, COVID-19. First of all, yes, there was confluence of events moving into 1920 with the Spanish flu still going on. The tail end of the Spanish flu coincided with the 1920 election, which was a major election in American history. And I have no doubt that it contributed to the victory of Warren G. Harding. One thing I teach my students every year, it's just pretty basic U.S. history, is that coming out of World War I, there was a tremendous amount of, there were a lot of Americans, let's put it this way, who really wanted to get back to what Warren G. Harding very famously called normalcy. He didn't actually coin that word. It was a term from mathematics, normalcy, but he probably meant to say normality. People wanted to get back to normal. But it wasn't just because of the Spanish flu. It was because of World War I, and it was because of debates over the Treaty of Versailles and whether the U.S. should join the League of Nations. And then you throw into that the Spanish flu, and what Warren G. Harding very famously tapped into was a desire amongst Americans to get back to the way things were. And again, I have no doubt the Spanish flu contributed to that. But it wasn't the major, I don't think, contributing factor. One of the many, I would have to rank it somewhere maybe two or three or maybe not. 57, obviously there's no presidential election coming up. That wouldn't happen again until 1960. The one that really has an interesting connection to what's happening right now is the 1968 election. And 1968, a lot of historians believe is one of the biggest turning point elections in all of American history. For listeners who might not be familiar with this immediately, it's the election in which Richard Nixon completed his dramatic political comeback after having lost the 1960 presidential election and then having lost an, a, a governor's election in California, he kind of went into a a retirement for a few years and then he came out of retirement and won the election with only about 43 or 44% of the popular vote. What else was happening in 1968? Race riots, assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. by a white supremacist named James Earl Ray, the Democratic National Convention just imploding on live TV, LBJ going on TV at the end of March and saying that he was not going to run for re-election, Robert, Robert F. Kennedy being shot, George Wallace launching a third-party, just openly belligerent and racist third-party campaign. In the midst of all this, the Hong Kong flu, by the way, is actually killing more Americans than the entire Vietnam War in less time. In that in about a year, 100,000 Americans died of this so-called Hong Kong flu, whereas the entire Vietnam War only killed about 59,000 Americans. The point I'm making, though, is that what's strange is that there's a major election taking place, and almost nobody's paying attention to the fact that there's a major flu pandemic that is killing a large number of Americans. Because the, the events happening at that moment were so much bigger and so much broader. I mean, Vietnam, race relations, the, really the future of the soul of the United States itself.
0: And it really sounds like 2020.
2: <laughs> except, I, except, here's 100%. I mean, it's, it's it's the parallels are starting to get eerie. The difference is I do believe that this year in 2020, COVID-19 is going to cast a much bigger shot. I, I do believe that when historians go back and look at this, and rightfully so, the health crisis that had happened earlier that year is going to be a much bigger story in the history books than the Hong Kong flu was in 1968.
0: So well, it's, only, it's only June, so. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that is true. You know, we got the murder hornets, right? You know, Let's, let's find out what they do.
0: We got six more months of catastrophes to, to happen. Have you guys but, seen
2: this one a second? Have you guys seen the meme? It's going around social media right now. It's Back to the Future, and it's Doc Brown and Marty. <laughs> They're getting into the DeLorean, and Doc Brown says, "Okay, Marty, rule number one: never set it to 2020."
0: That's definitely a rule to follow. We're going to come back to 2020. To touch on what we were talking about earlier, though, with the reaction or the prescription to the virus, kind of, you know, the cure for the virus in terms of the economy. One of the unprecedented actions that the government took was sending out stimulus checks of $1,200 to people that were making below some threshold amount of money. What do you think that stimulus check well, what do you think the impact of that stimulus check will be on the psyche of Americans moving forward?
2: I think it's a great question. And my answer may not be as satisfactory as I'd like it to be. Here's the best way that I can answer this. I think this is where we need to resist the urge to overgeneralize. To me, what impact does the stimulus check have on the psyche of Americans? I think that depends on the Americans. I think it depends on the individual psychology. I think it's related to the kind of the grand question that we've been dealing with now for quite a long time. And that's the question of what is the effect of any quote unquote welfare measure on the person who receives it? Some people, when they receive help or government assistance, are extremely grateful. They're grateful because they realize that they haven't been forgotten. They haven't been, you know, the common man kind of you know syndrome. You know, they, that they, they just appreciate knowing that they haven't been disregarded or discarded. Others, they may feel depressed or almost ashamed about the fact that they need a so-called handout or even a hand up i've known people that have required government assistance food stamps and they're embarrassed about using them they don't want to use them they know they can't survive without them but there's something almost psychologically debilitating about receiving it it's one of the reasons why a lot of them want to get off that assistance as soon as possible and then of course there's the argument and i'm not going to discount it that says that many people become dependent on that assistance and so I would argue that it really depends on the individual. Some people may accept that aid and be very happy to have gotten it. Others may accept it and kind of feel ashamed about the fact that they needed it. And then other people may accept the aid and then they just can't wait for the next check to show up. Yeah. No, you tell me, what do you think?
0: I was, I was going to say, I think that's a, a really interesting and true point that is hard to It's hard to put yourself in the minds of other people ever, first off. And, you know, I think that welfare is a good thing and and that it it should happen for people that need it. Our economy is so wealthy. Uh, You know, we've got billionaires. There shouldn't be people that are sleeping in the streets that are 25 years old or, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I care about people. But my only concern with the stimulus checks moving forward is it becoming a platform for politicians where uh, let's say it's a it's two senators running against each other in a in an election if one of them is like I'll give you more money than that guy well I'm going to vote I'm going to vote the guy who's going to give me more money because who or, wouldn't do
2: that or if one of them is simply on record as having supported that stimulus bill and the other person is on record as having said I oppose the stimulus bill <laughs> even that can be used against I mean obviously Exactly. Well, you know, welcome, welcome to politics, right? Uh,
0: and,
2: and certainly, COVID nineteen has uh, is not immune from politics. In fact, if anything, it may have suddenly become very political, hasn't it? In fact, not suddenly. I mean, it was really starting to do that almost from the start, which
1: is. I think from before the start, it's been politicized, but especially with uh, the discussions in Silicon Valley. So we kind of went in a little of the specific perspective on that question, but I'd like to address the bigger picture implications. So that's the you know implications on individuals but from a kind of macroeconomic monetary policy perspective uh, you compare that to this isn't necessarily from a virus perspective but compared to strong st- government stimulus packages in response to other recessions you know 2008-2009 compared to now and the financial amounts are different so how can we kind of contextualize both the like the scope in terms of amounts and also the nature of this and the potential consequences of that
2: Well, okay, so my opinion about this would be, like, if you go back to the Great Recession and you look at TARP, you know, the Troubled Assets Relief Program, which was begun under the Bush administration and then expanded under the incoming Obama administration, a lot of the money that was, in fact, injected into the American economy, this is my opinion, this is not my area of expertise, but I do think I know more about it than the average lady, a lot of the people who received that bailout money were, in fact, banks, not average Americans. And there really became a, a really intense divide between, and I saw this on campaign commercials into the 2010 midterm elections, and I saw it become an issue again in 2012 in the presidential election. A distinction began to open up, which is back centuries, but really became intense, and that is the difference between Main Street and Wall Street, the average American and the fat cat, you know, banker and rich people. And what upset a lot of people about that bailout 10, 11, 12 years ago was that it seemed to be going into rescuing not average Americans and homeowners, for example, you know, hundreds of thousands of whom lost their homes, bailing out the banks that many Americans actually held responsible for destroying their livelihood. If you look at what's actually happening right now, one of the concerns that I would have, and that I know a lot of other people have, is that it, it seems to be happening all over again. The, the Fed, as I'm sure you guys know, has recently just injected about three and a half trillion dollars into the American economy. They didn't necessarily, by the way, print paper money. I hope you guys know that. They just kind of electronically injected the money, and who really benefited from it? Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley. Because the argument was that the American economy had shut down so dramatically almost overnight, if something weren't dramatically done to increase the money supply, and hopefully lower interest rates simultaneously, an expansionary monetary policy, that the entire American economy might collapse. In fact, I think the Fed Chair Powell basically said that had the US government not done, what it did just a couple of months ago that the American economy absolutely would have gone into really severe Great Depression levels. Now, if you're an economic conservative or a libertarian like Ron Paul, this is probably driving you completely insane because what it looks like is it looks like the U.S. government just printing money that doesn't exist and just throwing it into circulation, which is basically exactly what they did. So what concerns I me, mean, let me get back to this real quick, is that there seems to be a disconnect though between what the average American needs and what the financial institutions need. And I'm not denying that the financial institutions needed assistance, but the stock market, I'll just give you an example, didn't the stock market today, today's the 5th of June, didn't it- close? It hit
0: positive, it po- it's positive for the year.
2: How is it possible? And how is it possible yeah. that there are tens of millions of Americans who are still unemployed? I and think the stock the, market has recovered. I think there was I think, a
1: net job creation in May.
0: There was. There was um,
2: it, it does not come anywhere close to making up for the losses that took place going back to March.
0: That's
1: also true.
2: So,
0: Wall Street
1: so.
0: I'm sorry. To,
2: no, I'm just going to say Wall Street's close to recovering. Average American certainly has not. And so it seems again that maybe we're going back down this road again. And I would not be surprised. In fact, I think it's a pretty pain prediction right now to see this become an, an issue in the upcoming election here in 2020 and maybe even continuing to be an issue in American politics right up to the 2022 midterms. I mean, this is...
1: The separation of kind of how Wall Street, you know, elevator up, elevator, or elevator down, elevator up, they come right down and right back up, V-shaped recovery, whereas the actual average middle-class American is the long, slow road back.
2: That's exactly right. And the the concern that, you know, there is a political class that is so out of touch with the needs of the average American that that they often don't even, they can't even relate to the average American experience because they have no concept of what it is, because they live in a different universe that that's been a problem in our country for a long time and i think it's going to come back because of covid
1: i guess but how would that get contextualized in the election because you know the candidates on both sides live in that other universe
0: they're the uh, ones making the decisions so like you, it would have to be a, a non incumbent just like somebody that's saying that what they did was incorrect in order for it to really affect the midterms like i
2: could i could oversimplify this i mean i could sure. really I think the left is going to basically spin this as another example of politicians being willing to bail out their rich friends, but not being willing to do enough for the average American. Whereas the right is going to spin this as big intrusive government, big government that is, mm-hmm. you know, unwilling to actually rein itself in and police itself. That they're basically so used to being able to do things like just, you know, inject money by fiat into the American economy that they'll they'll do it. And again, that's why I brought up like Ron Paul and more conservative minded or libertarian minded uh, observers who are extremely concerned about the fact that they don't think the Fed should exist in the first
0: place. That's actually what I was going to say is that the you, t- you said fiat. And I think that a lot of the problem is that you can't inject a bunch of money without it benefiting the that top class and the financial institutions like they don't really have another way of doing it where it's going to land in the in the hands of americans besides the the stimulus checks you know like
2: yeah i know people who just only recently got their stimulus checks i have friends that own small businesses that are still waiting for their money um I, again, I think that's going to be politicized. There's no doubt in my mind that that's going to be politicized because the faster Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo and Morgan, Morgan Stanley get their money, and the slower the average American is waiting for their, you know, their check, which is paltry in comparison, obviously. I think the more both left and right are going to figure out a way to try to, to try to make this a campaign issue.
1: Yeah, While we're still on that uh, subject of kind of politicalization and weaponizing current events as a tactic. Can we go back a second and talk about how? the virus itself and the measures in terms of response and things like that have also been used as political uh, weapons or utilities by the different sides.
2: Well, I'll give you my opinion here. I'd actually like to hear what are your guys' opinions on how this has been politicized? I don't think anybody who's been paying any attention at all right now can't see that. I'm just interested in what you guys think.
1: Sure. So, I'll uh, borrow your phrase of oversimplifying about the left and the right, but you know, the left has kind of taken it as an opportunity to kind of get control and encourage people. They're just overly cautious and taking the, you know, let's not let anything bad happen. Let's not be reckless. Let's be extremely cautious. We can figure everything out. And I mean, Kyle might have a more nuanced perspective than I, me on this because I don't rip, watch the news. Can riff on that real
2: Definitely. quick? Definitely. Whether you're a liberal or not, I don't think this should upset you to hear because I think it's just a basic fact. I think that's uh, what we're
1: bringing you on here for.
2: The Democrats in this country right now, I think that they have seen the golden opportunity in COVID-19, in a a very, you know, it's a blessing in disguise, maybe, to point out the incompetence as they see it of the Trump administration in terms of dealing with the COVID-19 crisis effectively. And so, and I hope conservatives don't get upset by me saying this, but there is a decent amount of evidence at this point that the Trump administration's response to COVID-19 has been uneven, not particularly well-coordinated, and occasionally even chaotic. And so obviously they've jumped at this opportunity every chance they get to point out the failings uh, of the Trump administration. It's an election. Even if it wasn't an election year, they would be doing this. The fact that it's an election year only raises the stakes.
1: I agree with that. Yeah. I don't know. Ready to jump in here.
0: I don't really have a nuanced perspective on this. I think it's all extremely toxic and that politics in general is at a point where it's like, it's not savable. At least from a functional perspective, like it's not doing what it is intended to do, which is represent their like their districts of people, and also I, I mean, remember impeaching Trump in January. Like, I don't know. They,
2: last time you heard anybody talk about that. I they,
0: mean, if
2: you begin twenty twenty. What's the big story from twenty twenty? Only the third impeachment of a U.S. president in the history of our country. That was a big sure. story. Yeah. <laughs> and then, I mean, the joke that I was just recently talking to some of my friends about was, you know, and then it was like the Australian wildfires, you know, that was the biggest story. And then Kobe Bryant died, and that was the biggest story. And then all of a sudden, the entire global economy goes into a massive recession, and the developed world in particular is terrified by the spread of this disease that we have no resistance to. And for months, that dominated the discourse. Now, obviously, we have the reemergence, it's not new, we have the reemergence of concern about racial injustice and in policing and massive protests out there that are, you know, in some cases becoming way too disturbing for the images of it at this point. Going back to COVID-19, though, the left obviously weaponized this. They had an opportunity to do so. They're not going to miss that opportunity. They're not stupid. The right, I would argue, has also politicized the issue. And they. I would, I
1: would agree with that, too
2: took them a little bit longer to do it the window and this is again this is my opinion but I don't think there's any shortage of evidence to, to, to demonstrate this the way in which the right did it was by claiming that all of the public health measures were an infringement on their traditional historic liberties as Americans yes and that and that telling people to stay at home and not get a haircut was somehow unpatriotic. And that's a very powerful message for, mm-hmm. for conservatives in this country. It has been for a long time. And how could they not? By the way, this, I don't want to sound too cynical. I just believe in my heart of hearts that conservatives believe this. I don't think they're just making this argument purely political motives. I mean, I believe I would it's- say,
0: just to cut on quickly, that it's what? less about um, the haircut and more about closing down their hair yeah. shop. Where- yeah,
2: exactly. Yes, Yes. Yeah, and I, I want to thank you, Kyle. Uh-huh. i want to denigrate that idea. absolutely it's the idea that a lot of small businesses are, are being crushed
0: absolutely crushed and and so and i think that most business owners tend to lend themselves to a conservative ideology at least statistically i'm not sure if that's even true actually so maybe i shouldn't say that but i i think that that is a lot of the i don't know we'll cut no that part liberal,
2: <laughs> Kyle, i don't have the data back to back the no matter how socially liberal a lot of those business owners might be, economically speaking, they're probably—they
1: want to keep as much of their profits to stay in business. And exactly. a little more
2: of a conservative streak—that's what I've tended to notice amongst my friends. But so yeah, I mean, it, it didn't—it didn't take long, by the way, for COVID nineteen to just fall into these traditional kind of left-right dynamics that we've yep. been seeing in our country for a long time. Unfortunate, because uh, this was a very serious crisis, and that's the thing that. And I've already told you guys this. That's the thing that really worries me a little bit is that I think that one of the things that might get lost in in our political discussions, this is a very legitimate crisis. The, The potential for this to kill, I mean, it's already killed more Americans than Korea and Vietnam combined, and that only took three and a half months to do that. And that was with the most historic social distancing measures that have ever been imposed. As I was saying earlier, people stayed home. And professional sporting seasons, for example, were shortened back in 1918, 1919. Apparently, Major League Baseball had a season, but it was a little bit shortened. But there was a World Series. College football happened, and people showed up to the games wearing masks. It's still not clear if we're going to have some of these some of these things happening this 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 year. Many Americans expect to. To see it in the fall, especially. Had we not done some of those things, I mean, the death toll could have been e- even higher than it is. Unfortunately, that there's a tendency already amongst some people in our society to look at this and go, "Oh, this was some sort of conspiracy. This was this was a manufactured crisis." I God, I hope they don't really think that because they're they're in for a rude awakening when they or their relatives get sick. I hope
0: one, one thing that's informed my perspective through all of this was a tweet, actually, that I saw very early on. And it said, in three months, when everybody is calling our response an overreaction, you'll know that we did a really good job.
2: So, again, and that brings us back, though, what was the collateral damage? I mean, that is a legitimate question. How many millions of people had their livelihoods taken away from them? were incapable of supporting themselves and their families in a way that can be very depressing and debilitating when you don't know where your next paycheck is going to come from. There's whole industries that may never recover from this. Think know just Las Vegas because Louis is from Las Vegas too. I've been told by friends of mine that work in the gaming industry here that buffets may never come back, ever. Sure. Think of how many thousands of people in this town are cooks or servers who work in these buffets in these hotels? What do you tell those people? Get a new job? Trust me, they'll be looking, but the question is where are they gonna find them? How about all the bars and the restaurants now that are gonna be limited capacity? Think about all these people that have been paid, I mean, really terrible salaries, but the tips that allow them to make a living wage. What if they only get 50% capacity back at these bars or restaurants? Are they gonna li- be able to pay the rent once, once those legal protections subside? I, the economic effects, and, and Kyle, again, our reaction to this, and that's something I, I, my, my, my liberal friends are, I think, loath to, to discuss right now, which is odd in my opinion. I'm upset if they ever hear this, but I don't think they're taking the economic effects into this as seriously as maybe a lot of conservative commentators have. Conservatives have tended to focus on the economic effects. Liberals have tended to focus on, you know, we need to save lives. Yeah, their and- argument
0: is always lives over dollars, and my response to that is always... Uh, until uh, the unemployment rate is so high that people are starving to death. Like the, the economy is a function of how good our lives are, uh, essentially. And at a certain point, it will cause more deaths of economic instability. Uh, okay, I'm going to ask one question that actually paints the coronavirus in a positive light. One, one thing that it's done for me is it's allowed me to spend a lot of time with my family a time that i probably never would have gotten again in my life that i've really enjoyed and you know i think some of that is actually my privilege being able to live in this house with my family and be provided for but that return to the n- nuclear family has happened before in american culture and it's happening now what do you think the effect of it will be going forward
2: uh, i'm going to disappoint you right now with my answer uh I think it's too early to tell what effect this is going to have on the nuclear family moving forward. Now, again, this is maybe my perspective as an a story. At the beginning of the pandemic, again, I mean, I could just, I was not hiding inside of my house. I mean, I was, I was wearing masks and I was going out and I was hiking and, and, and going on just walks through my neighborhood. And it was very encouraging just to see how many people were spending quality time with their families. I don't have a family myself, an immediate family. I'm not married. I don't have any kids. But I have a lot of friends who do. And almost to a man and a woman, all of my friends were telling me that one of the best things about the coronavirus was how much time they got to spend with their families. And there were, you know, I don't want to make an off color joke right now. I mean, you guys are college kids, so I'm sure you guys, uh, there was a lot of jokes going on about how there was going to be a baby boom in nine months. You know that there was i saw these memes about what the what the names of these kids in nine months would be you know, the implication being that people were spending more time they're, they're and enjoying each other's company more and you know the joke that i saw was that these kids would be called coronials here's the thing though that's happened in the last month now i'm a bit older than you guys i'm in my 40s something else started to happen unfortunately as a result of covid 19. And what else started to happen was reports of domestic abuse rising, that maybe it's just a combination of cabin fever, you know, and that old phrase that says familiarity breeds contempt. And that maybe after the first month or so people started getting on each other's nerves. I got to tell you right now, the joke that I'm hearing far more often now amongst my friends is that when this is all over divorce lawyers might be doing very well. (laughs) When you, when you have to go to work every day, And then you come home and you say, hey, honey, how was your day? And you have dinner together. That's one thing, because you have some separation. You have some distance. After two months of being in the same household as that person (laughs) nonstop, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think it might be a little bit premature to think that this is going to have any effect one way or the other. I guess me as the historian, I would pump the brakes and I would urge caution to the approach. Again, I think it's going to really depend on the individual and the individual family. And Obviously, I I don't want to see any of my friends break up, but... (sighs) I don't know. I've been talking to a couple of my friends and let mean, just say right now, they're they're really looking forward to going back to work. <laughs> There's my yeah dark, dark humor about this. Well, it's but...
0: not, well, it's not the answer that I wanted. I do appreciate <laughs> the truth. I'm,
1: I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. and I mean, I can, I can even attest a little bit to the answer there that we have, I mean, anecdotally a very different situation where, you know, my sister was in Los Angeles and chose to stay I mean, for some people, it's logistics, some people, it's personal. My sister had the foresight to know that, you know, when all four of us are in the same house for anything more than three days, you know, we start fighting. So she chose to stay in her apartment in Los Angeles just to keep the peace in the family, and not cause, you know, too much bickering from us all being in the same place and having to talk politics and news and opinions every single day, you know, and some people just got stranded and didn't come home. One of my best friends, you know, Mr. Amarin, Seth Marowski, he in Oregon and he's just,
2: he's,
1: he's not come home once, you know, I was like, you know, you know, spring break, maybe I'll hang out with Seth, but he never came home just because, you know, his family's, his dad's doctor and kind of was proactive and said, I don't even want you getting on a flight in early March. And so he's not had a chance. He don't want to drive. So a lot of people just logistically or personally, it didn't even happen in the first place. So
2: yeah, anecdotally, listen, anecdotally, I can tell you right now there's a, a, a woman that I've been dating recently, and, and she doesn't live in Las Vegas. She lives in Los Angeles. But her sister was here in Las Vegas. Her parents lived here in Las Vegas. And the moment COVID 19 struck, she lives alone in, in, in LA. She immediately drove to Las Vegas so she could be with her family. And actually, it's turned out to be fantastic for her because her sister has an adopted child and she's been around now to help raise that child. I mean, it's really been a, a tremendously positive experience all around for, for everybody involved. So again, it really depends on the individual. And I I, I hope I wasn't too.
0: <laughs> I, no, 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 no. <laughs> but, um,
2: Yeah. I, I listen, I'm a giant fan of nuclear families. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> I like to think that uh, people wouldn't require a deadly global pandemic to realize how much family means to them and how much time they should have been spending with them already.
0: Yeah, I, I just think it's very powerful. And I think I, I did aggrandize uh, grandize the idea of it in my head before I asked it mm-hmm. to you. So really, I, I really do appreciate the truth. Absolutely. But
2: again, but listen, again, let me just say right now, I can't tell you how many friends I have who 10 years from now, they're probably not going to remember any argument they might've had with their spouse. What they're going to remember is the fact that they actually got to spend more time with their kids mm-hmm. than any other time during their kid's childhood.
1: Mm-hmm. Which
2: is, I mean, how do you how do you how do you quantify the benefits of that? Mm-hmm. I don't think you can. No, so it's been very positive for a lot
1: of people. I agree with that. So while we're still on a somewhat optimistic note, or well, actually, that's presumptuous of me to say that, but <laughs> <laughs> based on the question I was going to ask, I was just thinking in terms of discussions of you know drug development, and this kind of taps more specifically into some of your academic background. Is the timetables for some of this more not economic response, but medical response, the epidemiology side of things, the vaccine. Can you walk us through kind of how to contextualize that better and get a more deeper understanding of what's realistic, what's not realistic, what the risks are of moving too fast?
2: So yeah, so if the danger of, of getting into a subject which itself has become political, unfortunately, what I would urge again, people is to be cautious and realistic about their expectations at this point. If you try to push Vaccine development too quickly, you can run into a whole host of incredibly serious problems: unintended side effects, vaccines that do not work. In fact, in some cases, I'll give you a couple of historical examples right now. Situations in which vaccines were rushed into use so quickly that they actually led to people people dying. The other thing I would encourage people to remember is there's no guarantee that we will even have a vaccine. I I understand we're hearing a lot of numbers thrown around out there that 18 months or 24 months i mean listen I'll, I'll just give you a few examples of viruses that don't have a vaccine to this day dengue fever there's no vaccine for dengue fever hiv aids i think we've put a lot of money into hiv aids research since the 1980s there's still no vaccine for that malaria that's killed probably more people than any other disease in the history of man we
0: still, It's killed more people than anything
2: right mosquitoes are probably the deadliest animal in the history of the world at malaria we don't have a vaccine for malaria And what makes coronavirus, obviously, as you all know, so potentially damaging, is that it's a novel, meaning new virus that we don't have any natural resistance for. Now, if you read what the people that are looking into this are doing right now, the first thing they'll tell you is, again, you cannot rush these vaccines into production and widespread use. Look, I'm just going to go ahead and say some basic things right now. I'm sure most of your listeners know this, but let's just cover some basics. What do vaccines do? What they do is they introduce a little bit of a virus into the body to trigger an immune response. There's basically two types of vaccines that you can have. The first one is called attenuated. And what that means is that you have a weakened form of the virus, but it's a live virus. The second one that you can have is what's called an inactivated virus an inactivated vaccine, excuse me, which is a a dead version of the virus, that it still triggers an immune response. Let's look, for example, at the development of the polio vaccine. There, There was probably nothing more terrifying for American parents for a long time than the polio vaccine, infantile paralysis. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard about, you know, Dr. Jonas Salk, Sabin, the developers of the vaccine in the 1950s. There was a tragedy that took place in 1955. It's called the Cutter incident, where a company, I believe it's in California, called Cutter Laboratories, accidentally released a version of the vaccine that was including a live virus. And the results were tragic. Thousands of kids got sick. Hundreds of kids were paralyzed. A couple dozen or a dozen or so kids died. And it was immediately pulled off the market. See... This is what happens when you rush vaccines into production and use when maybe you don't fully understand what you're introducing yet. Um, Here's another problem. I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. There have been examples in which a vaccine was introduced too quickly and not only did it not provide protection, it actually enhanced the potential of the patient to get an atypical or more serious version of the virus. This happened very famously in the 1960s with a measles vaccine, measles vaccine that was introduced too quickly. As recently as 2017, this happened with an attempted dengue fever vaccine that was given to children in the Philippines prematurely, and it sickened hundreds of kids, killed kids. And that's one of the reasons why to this day we still don't have a dengue fever vaccine. A lot of people don't understand this, the human body, it takes weeks just to produce antibodies. And then it takes longer, months, before you might actually see any harmful side effects. Mm-hmm. You can pour money and you can pour resources into this. You can pour billions of dollars into this. What you can't necessarily speed up safely is peer review and the different phases of vaccine development that are necessary to actually make sure that you don't accidentally kill people. Yeah. Um, and like a lot of things in life, shortcuts cause problems.
0: You can't force it, and you can't find a you can't produce a sample large enough to simulate the amount of people that are getting that drug in the world because it it threatens eight billion people. Let's say the best case scenario, you test you 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 test it on a million people. I mean, that's unheard of and could never happen. But you're missing you're missing a quadrillion um, like. I don't know the word for it. Variations. Variations. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so
2: there's, a, there's another problem. I mean, we're just learning about the coronavirus. I mean, how many strains of this are out there? I mean, it, you could end up with, you might end up with a false sense of security in that you put a vaccine out there that might actually prevent the the transmission or, you know, prevent the transmission, but let's just say save a lot of lives from one strain, might actually lead to the expansion of another strain, which starts to go. This happens with flu vaccines sometimes during the flu season, for example, where you know they're doing the best they can, the, developer, the developers of these vaccines, but you can't necessarily create a vaccine that protects against all strains of influenza. Trying to figure out what the most likely strain of influenza during that season is going to be, I still think we're learning about the coronavirus at this point, and it's just not clear that we know enough about it at this point, no matter how much money, no matter how hard, and these, look, these people are moving at lightning speed right now, and they're moving at unprecedented speed in terms of trying to address this. I just think that people need to be very careful about, like, I see it on social media a lot, for example, where people are there, they want to be hopeful, and they'll post an article that they saw on the internet about, you know, how, you know, scientists have developed a vaccine, and you know, in France or scientists developed a vaccine in Germany or Israel or wherever. And what they don't understand is that they might be creating a false sense of hope for people in terms of, okay, we just got to weather the storm until the fall. And then sometime in the fall, there'll be a vaccine. There might not be a vaccine until 2021. And there may never be a vaccine that's effective against all strains of coronavirus. It's just one of those things where I'm not, I'm not saying that to sound negative. I'm saying it because people need to be realistic. I was saying a second ago, Kyle, by the way, I mean, there's typically three phases in vaccine development. The first phase usually uses a very small number of volunteers, and we're talking maybe a few dozen people. If that is successful enough, they go to phase two, and that's when you start maybe seeing the introduction of you know, control groups, test groups, you know, double-blind studies. Eventually, by the time you get to phase three, phase three only involves thousands of people. I mean, we're talking about a vaccine that's going to have to hopefully be deployed to help hundreds of millions, if not billions of people, and so... Yeah, again, it's 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 going to be a messy process. It's it's there's no guarantee that it's going to fix the problem. But this isn't this isn't like building a dam. This isn't like building a skyscraper. This isn't you know a military project. This isn't real estate development. That's not mm-hmm. how science works. And there's a lot of people out there who have seen too many movies. And they have a very naive sense about how science works. And they think that there's a heroic scientist who at the end of the movie develops the cure. And then the last scene is they roll to the credits is people getting their shots and kids going back to school and being happy. It's, this is going to be a long haul. You know, this is going to take a while to actually uh, get control of this situation. I think we have off to a, a decent start. We can move past the political wrangling. But as far as vaccine development is concerned, again, the, the history behind it is, don't get your hopes up. Again, AIDS research has never led to an AIDS vaccine. Malaria, again, one of the biggest killers in the history of man. So, and this is a totally new virus that we just don't have any natural resistance to. I hope people have a realistic sense about the time scale here because if they don't, they're going to be disappointed.
0: Yeah, it's definitely hard to look at and easy to grasp at anything that gives you a little bit of hope. You know, you can't blame those people. No. on social media that are that are reposting that because like, I'm not saying you are, I'm just saying okay. that, I, you know, you, I, you sympathize with them, you know, and I think can that, I that actually,
2: this, Kyle, real quick, I just want to say, I don't even blame politicians, because one of the things that a politician has to try to do is project confidence and positivity. And politicians, hey, look, let's just be, let's just be blunt. You don't get elected by telling people what they need to hear. Sometimes you get elected by telling them what they want to hear. You spend that however you want. You can say, you know, lie. If you're a politician and you come out and you say what I just said, (laughs) good luck. Yeah. You're not going to win that election. If you're the politician who comes out and says, let's stay the course. Let's remain calm. Everybody, everything's going to be fine. We're going to have a vaccine in 12 months, whether it's true or not, the public will often hear that and go, thank you. You got my vote. So
1: yeah, let's uh, transition for a second to the other piece of your academic Uh, training which is the foreign policy kind of thing obviously this is a hugely contentious issue uh, between the united states and china whether the virus is from where they're whether they had advanced knowledge of different things and just what the potential economic and other uh, diplomatic impacts are between u.s and china and any other potential foreign policy hotspots that could get added tension from recent events
0: and a really quick addition to that What do you put the percentage odds at for a war between the U.S. and China in the next 15 years?
2: Oh, God. Uh, Well, um, can I address the second question first?
0: (laughs) Yes.
1: Uh, (laughs) There there are not
2: not very many historians, at least not, in my opinion, good ones, who would make predictions anything past about six months. With that said, I, I, I find it really... Oh, God, I hope I'm not wrong. I find it really hard to believe that the U.S. and China are are going to go to war directly. Not, it's. I would proxy put the likelihood wars. of proxy wars between the U.S. and China much higher. Obviously, proxy war, uh, proxy wars between the U.S. and the Soviet Union took place on numerous occasions during the Cold War. I do believe, unfortunately, we are in a in a moment in history in which the U.S. and China look to be. It, there's a new cold war really brewing between the U.S. and China because China is a rising power. The U.S. is, I don't want to say the U.S. is a declining power, but let's just say that there are a lot of Americans who, <clears throat> Trump tapped into this when he got elected in 2016, they don't want to be the world policeman indefinitely. They don't want to have to fight everybody else's battle for them. They don't want to have to pay for everybody else's defense. And there are a lot of Americans out there who, whether Trump is going about this in a wise or seasoned way is debatable, but there are a lot of Americans, and not just conservatives, but liberals. Actually, strangely, I feel like I know more liberals that feel this way than conservatives, which is ironic, because it's one of the things that Trump actually said, and that is that America first, the idea that we need to take care of our own backyard. Rather than spending billions and billions and billions of dollars on the rest of the world, why don't we spend some of that money on healthcare. Why don't we spend some of that money, for example, on adjusting, uh, addressing extreme racial injustice in our country? You know, to, maybe these are resources that would be better spent in our own backyard. Now, with that said, there's a perception around the world, and I'm, I'm going to get back to COVID-19 here. There's a perception around the world that the U.S., especially under the Trump administration, has been advocating its traditional global leadership role since the end of World War II. For better or for worse, the U.S. has been the leader of the Western world. And there's a perception and a fear out there some people are probably happy about it, but there's a perception that the U.S. is withdrawing from that. Now, let's get to COVID-19. You know, President Trump just announced that he wants to pull the U.S. out of the WHO, the World Health Organization. President Trump has obviously been ratcheting up rhetoric against China, calling it Chinese virus. The Chinese are not innocent, by the way, because the Chinese have been lying to their people with their state-run media, trying to claim that somehow COVID-19 was created by the United States, which is absurd. But yeah, it's 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 a little disturbing to see the, the, the heated rhetoric, which is not new. COVID-19 did not cause this. Again, this is getting back to... Yeah, I, I
0: mean, is, there's been three years of trade war leading up to this.
2: Oh, and tensions between the US and China obviously go back decades.
0: Yeah. And there has
2: been moments in which the relationship has been better. And obviously we are inextricably linked economically together in a way which I think it would make it extraordinarily painful. Talking about economics, extremely painful for... Our two countries to go to war with each other directly, absolutely catastrophic death toll that that would probably lead to. <clears throat> but yeah, I trust me when I say I don't I don't necessarily hold President Trump responsible for this. Again, his his impact is something that historians, future historians, are gonna have to unpack whether or not he exacerbated the existing tensions. Hey, look, let's not forget China is a. Single party dictatorship, and uh, yeah. <laughs> they, they, have a, they have agency in this situation too. Anybody who wants to claim that it's all President Trump's doing, I think, is conveniently ignoring the fact that China is a basically an authoritarian state. But it is it is definitely complicated the with, the relationship between our two countries. Oh, and China, I'm sure you guys have been paying attention to this. China has been having dust ups with a lot of other countries around the world as a result of this. There's a lot of Europeans, big are really upset with the complete lack of transparency that has been exhibited by the Chinese government from the beginning of the year onward. And it really appears as if they were engaging in some sort of cover-up. Now, the degree to which they were doing so, I think, things still remains to be determined. But are we going to go to war with China in the next 15 years? Let God help us if we do. Are we going to find that the relationship between the United States and China is going to continue to evolve in the next months and years absolutely and i have absolutely no doubt that tensions between our two countries are probably going to become a, a fixture of our relationship for years to come no matter who the next president is and that is not again all the trump administration's fault but i doubt it i doubt that we're going to go to war with china i i do believe however though that we're going to see a continuing effort to reduce our dependency on china for example or especially when it comes to medical supplies <laughs> yeah Hopefully also, you know, with things like uh, rare earth, you know, elements that are used to create, for example, uh, cell phones and other modern technologies, which China has about 95% of the global production capacity of that right now. And that's probably not very sustainable for the U.S. economy to have a country that is potentially hostile, controlling our ability to manufacture modern technology. So it, it just remains to be determined at this point. So do you guys have any Feelings, uh, have you heard from any of your professors? I don't know if you guys are in any econ or poli-sci classes in which your professors have addressed this. I'd be fascinated to know what they're saying right
0: now. I do not have that experience. My teachers haven't talked about it. I have had a few conversations with friends who have read books that allude to the the idea that a war with China is an eventuality. I, I don't know what that war looks like, I don't know what modern war looks like really. I mean, I don't think it would be troops in the ground. I think it would be a different kind of thing.
2: Cyber. Whatever. Space,
0: space cyber, something insane. I don't know. but already,
2: That's already happening in terms of the interference in the, our elections and that authoritarian regimes like Russia and China have figured out how to exploit our great strength, which is our, our diversity and also our, our system of government and they're figuring out ways to tap into that and exacerbate tensions in our society. That's my opinion. and I, I, I,
0: That's the pendulum it. that we talked about. Yes. They're trying to lengthen the string.
1: Yeah, I explain that a little bit more, Kyle. That feels yeah, you want to get into that real quick, Kyle?
0: Sure. It's kind of the way that I, I look at the American public and the media and polarization between uh, the two parties. I kind of look at it as like, a pendulum hangs down in the middle and at the center of that is uh the, the ball at the end of the pendulum is the american public and on the far left is like anti-fa, like uh sjw super liberal and then on the far right is white supremacists you know like horrible crazy trumpers people i don't know but when that that ball swings back and forth more people get out to those sides they go it's more more liberal or, or, moral, or more radicalized liberals and more rad, radicalized right. But the length of the string determines how many people get left out to either side. And I think that the goal of Russia and of China and uh, to some degree, the media, in order to gain viewers, like they're trying to, they're trying to get more people to watch them are trying to lengthen that string in order to polarize the American public against each other.
2: The, the degree to which the media have become wings of the of the, the main political parties themselves. The degree to which they perceive their role is helping one party get elected, perhaps. Look, there's a great song from the 70s. I'm sure you guys are familiar with the line, increasingly feeling this way. And the line is, uh, clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am stuck in, stuck the, middle in the middle of you. With
1: you. Yeah.
2: So that's kind of what I've been feeling lately.
1: And that's, I mean, a whole another conversation about, you know, the role of the internet and network technologies in causing that polarization, and the uh, way distribution channels have, completely yeah, the echo worked. chambers,
0: of so, social media.
1: Well, not even just social media, just mainstream media distribution channels as well. But exactly, just how those are, their viewership is polarized to the extent where it's not a problem to only take one-sided viewpoints on the network.
0: You know what I mean? Well, it's not only a pro- not a problem, it is necessary for them to continue to be who they are and making money.
1: And that yeah, and that just becomes an incentives problem of, you know, there's no incentive of giving a neutral, boring, not boring, but a neutral, boring opinion. And I think that's honestly potentially a third space that podcasting has kind of grown a popularity in uh, because it's got that independent agency of the producer. Some like Joe Rogan, who's, I mean, honestly kind of hard to pinpoint politically uh, doesn't he's he's, a lot of, he, he upsets a lot of people because of that? Bill, because he's, he account- lo- cause he's ac- accountable uh, only to himself. Uh.
2: Whether you love him or hate him, Bill Maher is another person who has a tendency to—he to, doesn't toe the party line.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: I've actually seen him uh, take some very interesting perspectives about COVID nineteen. I don't watch his show weekly, but every once in a while, I'll I'll catch an episode because channel surfing or something. But I've seen some of these more independent-minded broadcasters. What's interesting is the degree to which, even if they tend to lean left or right, if they don't toe the party line, they're almost immediately condemned as, as a traitor. How dare you say that? And I think that's dangerous. I think it's very dangerous when people are expected to say one thing because they are in the echo chamber. I think media bias... Is one of the great dangers to our society right now, and I think unfortunately moments like COVID nineteen really expose really expose our vulnerability to that. And that it becomes very difficult to get Americans to even agree on some of the most basic things like what we could do for public safety, because everything suddenly becomes, and we've talked about this already, political. I would just urge everyone, my students, your listeners, my friends, to be eternally vigilant, in that. You know, Ask yourself, be honest, ask yourself, why do I believe what I believe? Do I want to believe this? And if so, why? And be, and be humble, by the way. Understand that your worldview is not necessarily the correct one. And by the way, I'm not advocating relativism. I don't, I'm uh, opposed to that. I don't believe that all perspectives are equally valid.
0: One really good tip that I've heard along those lines is like, when you see something that you emotionally respond to, like uh, you, you see a post and you're like that, I don't like that. Like I, I hate that. That means that you should understand, you should find in yourself what you hate about that so that you can better discern your own biases. Amen. Of course.
2: Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, the biggest problem that I see also right now is, is, is just the outrage industry.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah.
2: In that, And again, coronavirus is not the cause of this. Coronavirus is simply a a new tool in the arsenal.
1: It's new material Um, to be outraged about because it the two sides.
2: It's killed so many people and it's destroyed a lot of lives economically, and that opens the door towards people wanting to weaponize it, as we were saying Mm -hmm. earlier, and politicize it in a way which is often, often it is, is flat out unhealthy. You know, I would again. I don't want to get preachy here, but I, I I would urge the left and the right to understand that they both do have a tendency to try to, what's the phrase that I've heard recently to virtue signal sure. and the left, for example, they have a tendency to question the intelligence or the compassion of people who don't agree with them. Yes. And What I would encourage them to remember is that the measure of someone's intelligence is not necessarily how much they agree with you.
0: That's a very, right? very good. Um, I like that measure i really like that yeah
2: the, the right has a tendency though to virtue signal in their own way and what they tend to do also true into question the patriotism or the americanness of mm-hmm. people who disagree with them so if somebody disagrees with them and they say well then you're not a real american you're not as much of a patriot as i am you don't believe in freedom as much as i do mm-hmm. and you know the measure of somebody's patriotism is not how much they agree with you we can somehow get these people to realize that we're, you know, maybe all trying to deal with the same crisis, then maybe we could actually get more done. But, you know, there's, there's utopia. <laughs> nice.
0: Yeah, I think we're going to have to write those two little clips down for sure. The, the measure of someone's patriotism is not how much they agree with you. And the measure of someone's intelligence is not how much they I, agree with you.
2: Th- those are like my life mantras at this point. And we, look, we all fa- we've all find ourselves falling into that trap. Let's let's not pretend that we're innocent of this. i I've,
0: well, I only just heard it, so I'm definitely not. <laughs> I, I definitely haven't followed that for very long.
2: Catch yourself though. Catch yourself the next time you see somebody on social media post something just just exposes this gross ignorance about COVID uh-huh.
0: nineteen. And,
2: and you read it and you go, What are you, an idiot? It might be, but at the same time, like you can't just assume that they are just because maybe they don't take your perspective. And I, and I feel like that's part of the part of the ugliness that I'm seeing. Right. Yeah.
0: now. Yeah. I think that that is a good point for us to jump into the last section of our show, which we call the bonus round. Just like bonus just round. six or seven questions for you. I uh, uh, you think yeah. a varsity quiz. Uh,
1: yeah. uh, fire away.
0: Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, the first one of which is uh, if someone wanted to become more versed in the things that you, know so much about and studied for so many years what would be some good books for them to read on medicine technology and pandemics to be culturally and relevant the
2: the, the books that Um, i found on my shelf about the history of medicine are books that i tended to get when i was in graduate school and they tend to deal with very specific topics if you want to write scholarly history unless you're a really established professional historian on faculty at some big school, you don't write a book on just the history of medicine. You do a microhistory. You look at, for example, uh, one book, for example, I have is called No Magic Bullet. And it's a fantastic book that deals with the effort to combat venereal disease, of all things. But there's a lot of things you can learn from that book about just the history of medicine generally. Or Mm. another book that I have called The Gospel of Germs, which is from Harvard University Press. It's fantastic and what the author of that book was doing was looking at how difficult it was to convince the public that there were these microorganisms that they couldn't see and to try to make sure that they cleaned up society and that they didn't just you know dump sewage into the streets which might increase the pestilence that was ravaging american cities specifically though about pandemics and the coronavirus the the go-to book that i'm going to recommend And it's an older book, but it's almost amazing how accurate some of this woman's predictions were is a book called The Coming Plague by a woman named Lori Garrett. And she published it, I believe it was 94 or 95, it was the mid nineties. And I had to read it in a grad school seminar. And what's interesting, by the way, is that a lot of critics when the book came out said that it was panicky, that she was sensationalizing the risks of pandemics. But let me just give you a few examples of some things that she said. One thing she said, for example, was that megacities, that the larger urban areas got, the more dense the population congestion in these cities became, the more likely it is that pandemics would ravage populations. If you look at the hot spots around the world right now, New York City, you know what I mean? Exhibit A, rural areas have not really been hit as bad. She also talked about the ease of international travel. Now, this is going back 25 years, but you know, international travel is becoming e- easier and easier, and it's just easier as time has gone on. And so the fear there is that disease has a tendency to spread faster than the ability of epidemiologists, to keep track of it or contain it. She pointed out, for example, that the U.S. government has, has a spotty record on its own, the resources that it puts into fighting potential global pandemics, that one administration might put a lot of resources into it, and then the next administration might cut funding. And then there's just kind of like these oscillating waves of one administration undoing what the previous administration did. We've heard a lot of concerns about that. And then the last thing that she talked about a lot in that book was the ability of global pandemics to exacerbate international tensions and that she felt that this was a national security issue. Wow. It's when you look at what this woman was saying in the 1990s, and so it's going to be a little bit dated, you know, people, if your listeners go out there and read it, and by the way, apparently it's difficult to find this book right now on Amazon. (laughs) Sold out. Yeah. People, people went back and said, Ooh, uh. Maybe maybe this was a a better book than we realized even back then. I think if they read that book, they'll they'll get a, a almost a blueprint for everything that can and did go wrong this past
1: year. Yeah, well, that's a good answer to that question. Very a uh, couple of good choices there. If anyone's really interested in the
2: coming plague, digging by, deeper, the coming plague by Laurie Garrett. Let me just repeat the title. Gospel of Germs is a pretty good one too, but it's a little bit more specific. It wouldn't necessarily deal with the coronavirus or the Spanish flu, even for that matter. Same thing with no magic bullet. No magic bullet though is a really interesting book though. Again, about the efforts to control venereal disease. It's it's an interesting one. I would encourage students to to, to read that if they get a chance.
1: Okay. Uh I'm gonna ask some questions now, kind of more about uh more career focused on like your education, things sure. like this. Is uh I don't know, you might say, I know absolutely nothing right now. It's June. Give me two months, I'll give you an answer. Yeah. Uh anything about the future what the fall semester is looking like, you know, in Clark County and Nevada students, what high school is going to look like in the next couple months.
2: The rumor mill is churning. And <laughs> it is like, how about, I mean, I'm, listen, I could throw that right back at you and ask you what's going to happen at the University of Alabama. What I'm hearing right now is I'm hearing a lot of suggestions that they might stagger the student body in a way so that maybe half the student body shows up on Monday and Wednesday, and then the other half shows up on Tuesday and Thursday. And then Friday is a day in which you do virtual teaching or uh, something along those lines. It, it's going to be almost impossible in the Clark County School District, which for your listeners is Southern Nevada. I believe it's the fifth largest school district in the country. It's over 330,000 students. It's going to be extremely difficult to socially distance these kids and keep them six feet apart. That's just not, it's just not possible. Our schools are overcrowded in the first place. That's true. And so, look, I, I, that, that's outside of, my, outside of my pay scale. I can tell you that right now. The, uh, the, the big wigs in our district, the people that, uh, that really make decisions, and I'm definitely not one of them. I'd like to think that they're working around the clock to figure out what they're going to do. I think a lot of this also has to do with what's the rate of transmission as we get closer to August? H- have we reached a second or even a third wave at that point? distance learning is uh, as they called it is probably going to have to be a, a, a feature of the american educational system for at least the next year
0: i was speaking to speak to your point about alabama i was speaking with a architectural design person that works for the university yesterday mm-hmm. and he was talking about russell hall lewis uh, i know you've been in it before it's it's our basically our largest auditorium probably like 480 students and he said the the maximum amount of students they'd be able to to fit in it, given the restrictions, was seventy eight.
1: Oh, wow. And that's Russell, cool. yeah, Russell's huge.
0: Yeah, so, that's where
1: uh, music appreciation held. <laughs>
2: uh-huh. Uh I will add this in. They're going to have to adapt. Look, a lot of these schools. Uh, there are a lot of nonprofit schools, but there are a lot of for-profit schools, obviously, and if they're going to run their schools as a business, they're going to have to treat the students more like consumers, and they've been doing this. But at well, same- luxury
1: student housing, as one example.
2: Yes. They're going to have to figure out a way to provide the education and the amenities that the students ask for without charging an arm and a leg. And education has become very difficult for a lot of even middle class and upper middle class families to afford, especially out-of-state education. And so I'm just going to go ahead and say again, these administrators, these are going to earn their salaries here. And that they have big, dare I say, bloated salaries. And they're going to have to figure out some way to actually provide the consumer, quote unquote, the student with the
1: education mm-hmm. and the
2: amenities that they have been charging for all these years without harming the quality of the education that the students also receive.
0: And without crossing a line where the student won't pay for it.
2: Or where they put their students knowingly at risk. And then suddenly, even though young people don't tend to get COVID-19 in the numbers that obviously older Americans do, or maybe they open themselves up to legal liability because they put their kids at risk. And then the result was, you know, campus had to be shut down because there was an epidemic on the University of Michigan or what have you campus. You understand?
1: Yeah.
0: Go ahead, Kyle. So one big question, uh, should we be worried about the USA collapsing?
2: No, and I'm I'm going to say that without any... That's a good answer. No, period. Declining? Yes. Every great power declines. And anybody who has read even this much world history knows that. And there are a lot of people that believe that the United States is in, in the midst of a decline right now. Collapsing? Absolutely not. The United States is going to continue to be one of the great global powerhouses for generations to come. I say that with some trepidation because, again, like I said a minute ago, any historian with half a brain is hesitant to make predictions. I love
0: the confidence. I absolutely love it.
2: Well, I mean, it's just it's difficult for me to imagine. I do want to add this, though, and I really feel strongly about this. There's been a steady corrosion of faith in our institutions in a society. Yeah. Both the left and the right are guilty of this. The right, for example, has long had it. It's one of their political principles that you can't trust the government a lot of conservative politicians run for office and basically what they promise is i'll dismantle the federal government elect me because i'll dismantle it and then on the left you know especially with the social justice warriors there's a tremendous you know belief that the entire system is rigged and that you know, the system itself is is corrupt from top to bottom i think we're seeing this in the, the the george floyd protests right now for example i would be very hesitant and again this is the moderate in me Anybody who's giving you a message that we need to burn it down, just burn it all down and rebuild it, that is an incredibly dangerous message because it takes a long time to build these institutions. Broken institutions need to be fixed. But I would distrust, if I were you, anybody who is espousing a position that says that the, that the institutions in our country are so corrupt that they should just be blown up. Uh, if America is going to collapse in the future, I think it's going to be because we lost so much faith in our own institutions that we literally saw no reason to keep them around. And mm-hmm. I think that's the moment which the United States really does collapse in a way, which is difficult to imagine for me, at least at this point, I mean, I think we're on the road to that sadly, but I don't think the U S is going to collapse and I would hope that nobody's too worried about that.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we like that. We answer?
2: Gonna we're going to, we're going to be all right.
1: That's good. Uh, one much, much lighter last quick question here, uh, is about score inflation for the AP exams. Mm-hmm. If you think that's a potential issue, I know a lot of people online you're not so accountable when you're at a desk unsupervised it seems like they kind of lowered the threshold for From what i've heard the tests were easier than they should have been is you're
2: not suggesting that kids cheated are you <laughs>
1: <laughs> let's use the word resourceful <laughs>
2: <laughs> a good euphemism
1: is that what? a potential is that a concern uh that that's going to be like a rampant thing or
2: we know that cheating was rampant there was an article that recently came out in teen vogue I don't normally cite Teen Vogue articles, but I'm just going to say it right <laughs> It was a fantastic article in Teen Vogue. It really was about all the schemes the kids had come up with to cheat. <laughs>
1: That'd, be fun. That'd probably be a fun read.
2: I encourage you to look it up. Just look up Teen Vogue AP cheating. You feel, I guarantee you'll find it. It just came out a few weeks ago. Actually, the exact opposite, Lewis. I'm very concerned that my scores this year are going to go down. I don't know if the national scores are going to go down. I'm a little concerned about my students, though, and one of the reasons why is because it was almost impossible to keep them accountable. And now I know why they did it. They did it for equity issues, but the Clark County school district that I work in made all assignments optional. Wow. What I can say right now is that- at what, at what point
1: in the semester? Is this March? It was in March. So at what point, what year are you at in your curriculum teaching?
2: Uh, well, I was behind as usual, as I'm sure you can
1: remember.
2: Uh, <laughs> I was right on the cusp of the 1920s. Okay. So it's getting into the roaring 20s. And then, a lot
1: happens after that. Oh, uh, What happens after that? I said a lot happens after that.
2: Well, I don't normally get much further than the 1980s. I get a little bit into the, the effects of the conservative resurgence in the 1980s on the brand of liberalism that was being practiced by, you know, uh, Bill Clinton, that even even Clinton had to scale back welfare entitlement programs. A lot of this is because of the you know, the contract with America, the election of Newt Gingrich and the Republicans in the midterm elections in 1984. But that's pretty much like the last thing I get to. When I say last thing, I mean, that, that's like the day before the exam. And... The result, by the way, is that, that almost none of my students miss any questions about the 80s and the 90s, and there's only a couple. What I really needed to get through, obviously, had they not changed the format of the test, is I needed to get through the Cold War and the Civil Rights Movement, and that's the, those are the two big topics in the post-World War II era. Those were all canceled. College Board did not ask any questions whatsoever after World War II. So the truth is, is that it was very easy for me to get through what I needed to get through and actually go into it in more detail. Here's the question. Who was listening?
1: Yeah, did your students come to class, do their yellow packets? You know, I don't so know.
2: Those all got canceled. Yeah. So whatever the traditional things that I normally do as a teacher to keep students accountable, which if you look, I would love to live in a world in which grades aren't necessary, and there is such a thing as grade inflation. But The moment you tell 185 very bright young people that they don't have to do anything unless they want to, I can tell you exactly what happened. 100 kids didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah 40 kids did everything I asked them to. And then there's about 40 something more kids that did some of the things I asked them to do and not the rest. But there's probably, maybe not a hundred, but about 90 kids, about half my students who just fell off the face of the earth. <laughs> and so I hope they did well on the AT exam, but it's really difficult for me to, to know. I guess we'll find out in a couple of months. huh? So I think, I think scores could go down. And the other thing is, I just wanna add this one last point. You would like to think that the people grading the exams would go easy on the kids because they understand that COVID-19 created an unprecedented challenge for both teachers and students alike. But the reports of students cheating and having their notes out in front of them and having, you know, Google and Wikipedia open and whatever they wanted, and I'm not going to get into the schemes that they engaged in to take the test together, but you guys probably would know about that more than me. Nope. What worries me is that the people that take the test days now, I'm not implying anything, I'm just saying... <laughs> that the people grading the essay now are going to take into consideration that it was open notes and that the bar will go up and that they'll expect the kids to actually do better than they normally would if it was in the more controlled conditions of being in a room when you don't have your textbook or your notes or the internet open in front of you mm. and so it's you know it's I
0: you know, think I that that there's gonna be so many things <laughs> like that uh, I mean, like. Yeah.
1: There's gonna
0: be a uh, lot of things. Uh, lots of things from the coronavirus. I, I really enjoyed this, this conversation with you, Mr. Aberman. I wish that I had you as a, a push teacher. I feel like we would have gotten some good some good debates in class. We just had that, that pleasure. Huh? I think
2: after, after class would have been the
0: time that I would have enjoyed talking to you, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: funny. But uh, I think we'll wrap things up here. I think, I mean, we covered a lot of ground. We didn't say anything too conclusive because that's the point, right? There's not too much conclusive to say right now. Just kind of.
2: It's not satisfying to people, Lewis. It's not. People want definitive answers and they, they want certainty. And that's, I think, what's been really driving people crazy. Yeah. In terms of, can I go to the supermarket and not die? And can I go back to my job, please? And, and feed my family. It's the you uncertainty know, of everything that's driving people nuts.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing with this, this with us. We appreciate it a lot.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, Lewis, I really enjoyed that interview. You know, we covered a lot of topics from politics to economics, to the pandemic, to, to the state of the world as it is right now. And, and looking forward, you know, I think that that was a great conversation from a guy with a lot of really important opinions. Thanks for reaching out to him and bringing him on the show. Lewis.
1: Yeah, I completely agree, Kyle. Uh, like we said, just right there at the end of that conversation, it wasn't such a conclusive conversation with definite answers and that's, but because uh, there really aren't definite answers right now. And that's what we brought them on to discuss, how we can contextualize it in terms of other events in history and think about things more realistically, think about the timelines for drug development so we can set our expectations more appropriately. Even though those expectations don't have clear answers, that's the whole point is to expect uncertainty. So that's this week's episode. We'll have another episode out next Tuesday. If you like the show and want to support us, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you listen to podcasts you can keep up with us and our updates on social media instagram twitter facebook by searching for the lewis and kyle show thank you so much for listening and we'll see you in a week or so with the next episode